This is the Responsible Sports Podcast, presented by Liberty Mutual Insurance. In this episode, we welcome Brenda Villa. Responsible Sports is a program dedicated to supporting youth sport coaches and parents who help our children succeed both on and off the field. Each episode, our host Jim Thompson, CEO of Positive Coaching Alliance, will be joined by professional coaches, Olympians, world-class athletes, general managers, and leading youth sports experts who share their insights from their own sports careers. In this episode, Tina Sire, Chief Impact Officer of Positive Coaching Alliance, steps in for Jim and talks with USA Water Polo four-time Olympian, Brenda Villa. I think water polo has called to me my whole life because it's such a team sport Mm. where you need to rely on others and others need to rely on you. Brenda talks about how she got her start in water polo, the life lessons she's learned, along with her approach to the game. Lastly, Brenda shares her Olympic experience and the road to becoming one of the most decorated USA water polo athletes. Brenda, I want to start off by introducing you to our responsible sports audience. Brenda Villa was born in East Los Angeles, and at the age of six, she started swimming for Commerce Aquatics. At age eight, she got her start in water polo. She graduated from Bell Gardens High School in 1998, finishing her career there as a four-time first-team All-American. Brenda arrived at Stanford University as the nation's top recruit and redshirted two years to train for the Sydney Olympics. As a 20-year-old, she led the U.S. team with nine goals in Sydney, where the U.S. took home the silver medal. In 2001, as a redshirt freshman at Stanford, she was named the Division I Water Polo Player of the Year. In 2002, she led the Stanford team to a national championship with 60 goals and was awarded the 2002 Peter J. Coutinho Award as the top female college water polo player in the United States. She finished her Stanford career as a three-time All-American with a degree in political science. In the 2004 Olympics in Athens, Brenda again led the team in scoring, and the team finished with the bronze medal. Brenda and the U.S. team took silver at the 2008 Beijing Games, and in her fourth Olympics, the 2012 Games in London, Brenda and her teammates triumphed 8-5 to over Spain in the final, bringing home the gold medal for the first time for the USA. In 2010, FINA magazine named Brenda the female water polo player of the decade. Brenda currently lives in Mountain View, California. Brenda, thanks so much for joining me and the Responsible Sports audience today. It's my pleasure to have the opportunity to join you today. I read you followed your brother into water polo, and I'm hoping you could tell our Responsible Sports listeners a little bit about that and what it was like to share water polo with him. Well, I think my mom initially wanted both my brother and I to learn to swim because of her fear of the water and her not being comfortable around aquatics or not being aware of aquatics. So Hmm. we lived across the street, so she signed us up for swimming. And since he was a boy and the water polo team was co-ed, he was allowed to play water polo first. And I just saw all the fun he had with his teammates interacting and challenging each other that, you know, it took me two years to finally convince my mom that it would be okay for her daughter to be playing on a co-ed team. And, Hmm. you know, I think having him there and watching him was definitely something that motivated me and helped me in my career. I always wanted to be just as good as him, and I always strived to get one compliment from him. And we actually ended up playing on the same high school team together, 
and we won like our first or we won a, a championship together and I don't think to this day I can remember a compliment from him but <laughs> I would overhear him talk to other people about me but he never directly was like hey great job so for me it was a way to motivate myself like you know what one of these days he's going to tell me great pass great shot great anything you know so that kind of pushed me but it was you know really special to be able to share those years with him competing alongside him so I know things have evolved a lot for the sport today but when you went to Commerce High School I think there was only a, a boys water polo team or maybe a co-ed team with a few girls on it and I'm curious if it was um, really clear to you that you would play on that team or um, you know was it sort of a decision to play on the team with all, with all the guys and what was that experience like being on a predominantly boys high school team well, growing up in commerce, we had, it was co-ed when you were younger, like 10 and under, 12 and under, and then we eventually had just girls for, like, Junior Olympics. Mm-hmm. But going to high school in Bell Gardens, because commerce doesn't have a high school, so we go to the neighboring city, mm-hmm. I knew that I would have to play on the boys' team. And at that time, I was already on the junior national team. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was clear that I wanted to somehow tie in sports and education together Mm -hmm. so it wasn't really a choice for me not to try out for the team because I knew that I needed to play year-round and play in high school in order to be competitive enough to maybe receive a scholarship for college and I mean I didn't assume that I would make the varsity team as a freshman and being the only girl but I knew that I needed to try out and what was that experience like after you made the team and and were you the only girl on the team and what was that like I wasn't the only girl on the team. There were a few other commerce girls that I grew up playing with that were on the varsity team. But, you know, for me, it was an easy transition because a lot of the guys were guys that or boys that grew up in commerce with me. So they had already, I guess I had already earned their respect as an athlete mm-hmm. and not like as a girl. So they just saw me as someone that could play and could help them. Mm-hmm. Competing against other teams that had never been around co-ed teams or around my program, they weren't always that happy with seeing me in the same pool as them. And I'd hear, you know, comments like, what are you doing playing a man's sport? But for me, it was just another way to help, you know, motivate me to, to do well in a certain game. Yeah. What did you do when those sorts of comments were made? You know, my teammates would always tell me, you know, Brenda, if you score on a boy or steal the ball or block, you know, a shot, like, they can't say anything to you. So for me, it was just kind of like, okay, earn the respect in the water. Don't say anything. Just just play. Like, your ability to play will, you know, sway them to just respect you as an athlete. So that's kind of just what I did throughout high school. It's like, okay, if someone, you know, is dunking me extra hard or fouling me extra hard, like, I know I couldn't win if we got into some sort of altercation and not that I wanted to but mm-hmm. you know I had to be smarter you know one of the things we're always looking for is sort of that life lesson element to sports and I'm curious when you think about that experience do you feel like that taught you a larger life lesson um, and what could that story I guess teach kids who might be um, experiencing that kind of criticism um, and disrespect when they're competing and, you know, how can they carry that into the rest of their lives? Yeah, well, I think the life lesson that I learned playing on a boys' high school team was just that you're not always going to have people that support you, but that can't, you know, affect you negatively. You kind of have to turn it around in your own head and use that as a way to inspire you to just prove to yourself 
that you do belong somewhere. Mm-hmm. For me, it was just always like, okay, just just play the game. It's not about any anything else. Yeah. And I think when you're out in the workforce or you're in a classroom, you're not always going to get, you know, people that see things your way. So you just kind of have to believe in what you do and know that it's right and just give it your best. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I want to go back for a second. You were saying that, you know, your mom, I think both are both of your parents from Mexico. Yes, both of them are. Yeah, and so um, I would imagine they're not quite as familiar with water polo as they might have been with some other sports. And I'm, I'm curious sort of how they adapted to water polo as a sport for you and your brother, and what did they do specifically to, to support you guys um, in, in water polo? It's funny that, you know, both my parents had no clue what water polo was when, you know, they immigrated to the U.S. They are soccer fanatics. We grew up watching soccer. Like, I could probably name more soccer players than, you know, water polo players when I was 10. Yep. (laughs) But um, my parents, my mom would always make sure we were at every practice, every swim, that we didn't miss anything. We always had lunch. Or if she couldn't take Mm -hmm. us, you know, she would make sure one of the other moms could take us. And they both always worked. Mm -hmm. My mom doesn't drive till this day. So Hmm. she somehow found ways to be at every game and to make sure that we were at every practice and competition. I think it helped that we lived across the street from the pool. Mm-hmm. So the factor of her not driving didn't really play that huge of part of um, not allowing us to compete in everything. But they've always just kind of have been supportive. I think they were hesitant at first to allow us to play this, this sport because they knew nothing about it. But they saw the fun that we were having mm-hmm. and the positive impact it had on us, like in the classroom and just at home. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, if they're having that much fun, like we have to allow them to continue to do it. So now they would say that they're experts. <laughs> I don't really agree with that, but my mom would definitely critique a game for me. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Say a little bit more about that piece you said about they saw the benefit it had on you in the classroom. Well, growing up, since my parents immigrated to the U.S. and they were not, they didn't finish high school, they knew that for their kids they needed to tell their kids that education was really important. And my mom saw that I was doing pretty good in the classroom, but once I started in swimming and water polo that I was still doing just as good. So she almost used that as a tool to to make sure that I continue to do well, she always told me, oh, if you don't finish your homework, you can't go to the pool. Mm-hmm. For me, that was punishing enough because I loved being at the pool. I loved working out. I loved being with my friends. So it was like, well, duh, of course I'm going to finish my homework. I want to do both, and I want to do them well. So yep. it, she saw from a young age that it allowed me to like manage my time and to make sure that I was able to do everything. That's fantastic. Well, um, you clearly excelled in both the classroom and the pool. I know coming out of high school, you were the nation's top recruit. And I'm curious if you could talk our responsible sports listeners through how you made your decision to go to Stanford and um, tell us a little bit about what role your parents played um, during that decision-making process. Well, my the, the way Stanford got on my radar is not, it's kind of a funny, silly story, but I love telling it because you never know when dreams will develop or who's to say that it's a silly dream. But um, I remember going to a Pac-10 swimmy and watching Stanford compete in, I think it was Long Beach, California, with my swim coach and my teammates. And I noticed Stanford's S, and from far away it looked like a purple S. 
Hmm. And I love the color purple. So I told my swim coach, oh, that's the school I want to go to. Look at how well they're doing. And they have a purple S. That's where I want to go. She kind of looked at me and said, like, you need to look into that a little more and then get back to me. Hilarious. And in my head, I'm thinking, what does that mean? Right. So I did a little bit of research. And I remember coming back to her and telling her, oh, well, Stanford's one of the top five schools in the country. I don't know about this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from that moment, I think my competitive like spirit was awakened a little more and I thought to myself well why can't I go there yeah so from that moment I believe I was probably seventh or eighth grade and that's Mm -hmm. when I was like that's where I want to go and I looked into it and I knew that I would have to do really well in school and get you know a great SAT score and Mm -hmm. just continue to work hard so for me it was a silly funny comment dream that turned into a real life goal for me. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And um, during the recruiting process, was it a difficult decision? Like I imagine you, you went on a number of recruiting trips and had a number of options. How did you, um, or was it just a foregone conclusion? You know, I did early decisions. So okay. it was, that's where I wanted to go. So I didn't really think about anything else. I did have, of course, backup plan. But mm-hmm. um, early on, I guess in October of my senior year, I knew that I had gotten in. So I was like, that's where I'm going. Mm-hmm. But it was a difficult process for me just because it was so new to, to me, to my parents, to my community. Mm-hmm. So I remember, you know, my club coach had to in on my house visit from John Tanner, the water polo coach, mm-hmm. you know, to make sure that he could translate and make sure that my parents really knew everything that was going on. So it was a difficult choice, in, or not choice, a difficult recruiting process in that sense because it was so new, mm-hmm. but not in the choice that I wanted to go to Stanford. That's great. That's great. Well, and then you did something really unique because you ended up redshirting your first two years, um, you know, in preparation for the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. And I know that was an interesting decision because our team hadn't necessarily qualified for those Olympics yet. And, and yet you were deciding to take time off and train. And I'm hoping you could tell our listeners a little bit about those two years and um, what that was like and, you know, culminating with uh, the win against Hungary that ended up qualifying the team um, for that first ever women's water polo um, in the Olympics in Sydney. Well, I think making the decision to take a leave of absence from school was probably one of the hardest decisions I had to, I had to make at you know, the tender age of 18. Yep. Um, I remember I showed up to Stanford for that first fall quarter, and, you know, three weeks into that, I found out that, oh, you were going to need to take time off to train if you want to try and make that Olympic team or try and help the team qualify. And for my parents, they weren't too fond of the idea of me not going to school. Like, for them, school was everything. Right. And they were nervous about me not finishing school. So I remember, like, here I am, it's like December, right after finals, and I still needed to make a decision, and Mm. sitting on the pool deck with my national team coach, and I'm crying as people are, like, walking by, probably wondering what's going on, but I didn't know what to do, and I wanted someone to make that choice for me. Yeah. But at the end, I knew that I would go back to school because that's something that I wanted to do for myself. Yeah. But I also knew that, you know, trying to make an Olympic team and being a part of that isn't always it's not guaranteed you don't know if the team will qualify you don't know anything nothing's guaranteed so I you know went ahead and decided to take off the winter and spring and my parents once 
you know, I talked to them and I told them, look, school is important. Don't worry. I will make sure that that happens. I just need to do this now. They were fully behind me and supported me in every way. And, you know, unfortunately, that first year we didn't qualify. So I went back to school another fall and I had to make that decision all over again. And oh, my gosh. I did have another Stanford teammate that took the first year off but decided not to take the second year off. Hmm. So it was a leap of faith. It was something that, you know, I believed in my team. I believed in myself and I knew that I needed to go for that. So, you know, we went for it. We knew that we had to try and qualify in Europe and water polo is huge in Europe. There's mm -hmm. a huge like tradition there. And no one thought that us American team was going to qualify, hmm. you know, on European soil against mm -hmm. the European team. Mm. So we get, to the semifinal against Hungary and for those of you that don't know water polo like Hungary's national sport is water polo <laughs> so for them it's you know they're just a big water polo country so that's who we needed to to face and be in order to qualify for the Olympics so if you won your semifinal you were in okay. they were taking the top two teams from this Olympic qualification tournament so we actually we beat Hungary six to five I think I scored the winning goal but I scored it at the beginning of the fourth quarter. So I remember it was like six and a half minutes of just defense, defense. like yeah. <laughs> going back and forth. And it was, it was an incredible experience because no one thought we could do it. So to be able to believe in your tight-knit circle, your teammates, and to accomplish something like that was amazing. But, of course, we weren't done yet because that just meant we got a ticket to you know, into the Olympics. We wanted to do more than just play at the Olympics. So, yeah, that's a fantastic story. Um, so, so inside responsible sports, we talk a lot about having a mastery approach um, to sports where athletes and their coaches really put the emphasis on, we have this acronym ELM, you know, where the emphasis is on effort, learning and mistakes and that mistakes are okay. You know, if you're learning new things, you're bound to make mistakes. Um, so that the, really the focus is much bigger than just the scoreboard, um, but it's all about effort, learning, and mistakes. And I'm curious if you feel like that mirrors your personal approach to the game, or do you feel like your approach is a little bit different than sort of that mastery approach? Well, I mean, you have to make mistakes. And I think one of my favorite quotes that I remember having, even in college, like a Michael Jordan poster, and I can't, I can't quote, I can't say word for word, but the quote where he says, like, I've missed over a 1,000 shots. I've been trusted to take game-winning shots 50 times, and I've missed. And because I have failed over and over again, that is why I succeed. Mm -hmm. So that is something that I've always, that quote has always followed me, and I've always, you know, taken inspiration from it because if you don't go for it, put in all your effort and make mistakes, you're not going to get better. And I think, you know, being so young on a, like, say, the 2000 Olympic team, that was something that I think I constantly was doing. I was putting in all this effort and probably screwing up left and right, but, you know, the coach was allowing me to make all those mistakes because that was going to help me learn and get better. Yeah. Do you have any coaches throughout your career that you feel like were especially good at that, where you really felt like you could play freely and not worry about having the coach come down on you if you made a mistake? And what is it that that coach did to create that kind of culture? Well, I think I've been very fortunate in most of my career mm -hmm. to kind of have a, a green light mm -hmm. and play. And I've always been like a vocal leader in the water. So I've always kind of been giving 
the green light to kind of instruct as well in the water. Mm-hmm. But I think it goes back to just the number of games that I've played over my career because I started so young and I've played on so many teams gave me that, not knowledge, but just so many games underneath my belt compared to anybody else at mm. my age. Like by 14, I probably played three times more games than any other 14-year-old out there. So that just gave me that many more failures and that many more experiences. So mm-hmm. I think that's what allowed most of my coaches to give me kind of a, a green light. Of course, when they saw that something was wrong, they would pull me aside and talk to me. <laughs> but um, I don't think anyone in particular, but I think most of them have kind of allowed me that freedom, which has been really great. That is great. That is great. I feel like when you answer that question, a lot of people are going to think about, you know, you as a prolific scorer and, you know, how many goals you've had. Um, but you're also really known as a wonderful passer. And I'm yeah. curious, how, you know. <laughs> Thank you. I yeah. love passing, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could just tell our audience a little bit about how you sort of develop both of those skills and, and not just one or the other. You know, I think, yeah, I think people think of me. Yes, as a as a scorer and a shooter, but I think I think back to when I played in in high school and playing against the boys. Like I was passing to all of them because I probably didn't score as many as they did. But you know, just being a good passer, I don't know. I get just as much joy as like shot blocking or making a pass and scoring a goal. Mm-hmm. And I think having a connection with somebody on your team mm-hmm. and knowing where they want the ball mm-hmm. and not even having to make eye contact because you know the move they're going to make is yeah. so rewarding. So for me, I think water polo has called to me my whole life because it's such a team sport mm. where you need to rely on others and others need to rely on you. So passing gives me that satisfaction. Like I know my teammate, I know exactly what she's going to do and I'm going to deliver that ball. Mm-hmm. So I think that's I don't, I don't know and playing so many games it's just it's more than just scoring goals <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely so one of the things you mentioned was being a vocal leader and I know at almost all levels of your sport you've played the role of captain and I'm curious what advice you would give you know a, a high school captain right now about how to be effective and um and on top of that like what advice you might give coaches about how to select captains and best work with captains well, I would tell a captain, like a high school captain, to make sure that they're also leading by example. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to say something and not do it yourself. But for me, it's like you don't have to be the fastest or the strongest, but you do have to put in the effort and you do have to show all your teammates that you are putting in all the work and that you're doing even extra. Mm-hmm. And if you need to talk to a teammate off, you know, off the field or out of the water. Like it's not just about what happens in the water. Mm. And I don't know if, you know, playing on the Olympic team and spending so much time with 15 other females, like you have to really make an effort to connect with your teammates in and out of the water. Yeah. And that just makes the experience that much more special. And I think more of your teammates are, will be willing to leave everything out there. Were there specific things you remember where you guys were sort of connecting, you know, outside of the water for that kind of team building that are, you know, things that other teams might be able to copy? Well, I remember even in like 2000, it was like we did a book club 
somebody picked a book and we all made dinner and we were somewhere but it's just giving us experiences that we could connect to out of the water and in this last quad you know we split into groups and you had an activity you had to do whether it was planning taco night or planning pictionary or whatever it was activity was you were in a group of four and you had to make Mm. sure that you did something that would bring everyone together and to have fun together outside of the pool because mm-hmm. it's easy to try and get along at the pool for two hours. Yeah. And it takes that much more effort to put aside an extra hour for your teammates outside of of training because then it turns into it about yourself. You know, so it's, okay, here is my free time, but I'm going to carve out more time for my team because this is what's needed. Right, right. So nothing special. It's just like the commitment and the willingness to put in extra time to get to know your teammates. So, so besides playing, uh, you've also coached at the high school and college levels. And I, I'm curious if you feel like the best players, do they make the best coaches? Um, or are there different strengths that a person needs to be a great coach that maybe aren't the same that create the best players? You know... I think everyone assumes that if you were a good player, you'd be a good coach, but I'm not of that mindset. Mm-hmm. I know that I've learned a lot in these last three years as I've coached at different levels, or I guess over more than three years, but you know, the different levels that I've coached, I've learned a lot. And I know that a great coach is someone that knows how to communicate mm-hmm. with each athlete because not everyone learns the same way. Mm. And I know that I've had to take a couple steps back and be like, okay, you need to break it down a little more. You're not among your national team teammates. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to explain the game and teach the game. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's been interesting. And I think in 2010 when I started coaching this high school team, I was still playing. And it made me appreciate coaching a little more. Mm-hmm. And it made me, I think, probably a better player. Mm-hmm after coaching because I, I realized a lot of things and probably a better captain mm. because it made me realize that there are different ways to connect to two teammates. So I, yeah, I don't think the best players make the best coaches or not off the bat, like with anything else, you've got to put in the work, you've got to learn, you've got to teach and you've got to keep evolving. So, so for our responsible sports parents uh, who are listening, what advice would you give them um, about what to do when they feel like their son or their daughter is getting fouled um, in the pool, but nothing's being called? <laughs> I would say do not start yelling at the ref or at the coach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like I'm all for the cheering and the positive um, feedback, but... I go to so many water polo games and parents are yelling and, oh, that's a foul, this is that. And our game is so hard to officiate Yeah. because it's in the water. The referees are above. You're missing half of what's going on. And, I mean, I'm not saying that I've never, like, questioned a call or anything, but I think you don't want that negative energy around the pool deck because you do feel it in the water when you start hearing people in the stands, like, complaining about calls where mm. if you're an athlete, you're just, you have to play through it. You yeah. can't let it affect you because that's yep. something you can't control. Mm-hmm. So if you have 100 parents up there yelling about something, it you can feel it in the water. So I would just say maybe limit 
the complaining about it. I mean, sometimes it is a found it's not called, but it's it's just a part of the game. And maybe I would suggest maybe having a conversation with the coach, not about a particular call, but just maybe learning more about the game if they've never played it before. It is a very confusing game for parents or for spectators that are just watching it for the first time. Yep. What about the parent who's upset because they don't feel like their kid is getting enough playing time? What advice would you give that parent? Well, just explaining to your kid that there's certain roles, and yes, they should try and be the best at whatever role they're given, but sometimes, like, I know I've sat out and I've been like, I want to be in there, but if the coach thinks that that's not your role at that time, then you just have to accept it. So, as a parent, you have to accept it, especially if your kid has accepted it. You don't need to, you know, make comments where your kid starts doubting their coach. Right, right. Because there's so much even that goes on at practice that that parents don't see. Yeah. So there's a lot of little details that go along with playing time, or they should. I'm not, I mean, I don't know how every single coach coaches, sure. but the ones I've been around, that's kind of how it's, how it's been. That's great. That's great. Um, so, so after the 2012 London games, um, you sort of officially announced your retirement and I'm curious looking forward, just what are your goals for your post playing career? Well, those were probably some of the hardest words to say, Yep. but, um, you know, I'm, I'm coaching. I grew up in the city of commerce and they subsidize sports and that is one of the big reasons why I am who I am today and I was able to play a sport like water polo Hmm. which you don't really see in lower income areas yeah so I'm doing a lot of outreach at the moment I started my own um, nonprofit project 2020 Mm -hmm. where we want to give access and low-cost aquatic programming to to girls in underserved communities Mm mm-hmm and at the moment, I've teamed up with Menlo Swim and Sport here in Menlo Park, and I'm mm-hmm. um, I started a girls' water polo team for un- for the girls in the in those neighborhoods in the community. So, just mm-hmm. giving back and making sure that more girls like me play water polo. Yeah, um, because I think excellent. sports teach you so many life lessons, and it's an opportunity to maybe help you continue your education after high school. And I want my sport to grow. I I don't think it's a national sport yet, and mm-hmm. I think I want to help it continue to grow. Yeah, well, with leaders and role models like you, that will definitely happen. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to share with me today. And I know our Responsible Sports listeners will really learn a lot um, from this interview. So thank you so much for helping all the parents and coaches and student-athletes that are listening. My pleasure. To learn more about Responsible Sports, visit ResponsibleSports.com. You'll find valuable Responsible Sport parenting and Responsible Coaching Guides, downloadable tools and worksheets, and helpful advice from leading youth sports experts. Music for this podcast has been generously provided by APM Music.